about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man But the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made enemies of the Lord, show utter contempt, and uh, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord stopped struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, While the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, 
but now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David, saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will take the city and it will be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. He took the crown from the head of their king. Its weight was a talent of gold, and it was set with precious stones, and it was placed on David's head. He took a great quantity of plunder from the city and brought out of the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws and with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brickmaking. He did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. Hello, my name's Samuel, and I'll be reading from Luke. Um, it's on the screen there, page uh, 1031. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone, and everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's uh, great to be with you. I'm very thankful to have the opportunity to speak with you uh, tonight. Please have uh, the reading from 2 Samuel uh, open in front of you. As I was preparing for today uh, and rereading the stories from our passage, 
I was reminded of an old Latin proverb. I'm sure you were too. (laughs) Corruptio optimi pessima. The corruption of the best is the worst. I think that sums up this sorry tale of David. And at this critical point in his narrative... Our reading from 2 Samuel 12 has the Messianic king of Israel showing himself to be much more the son of his father Adam as opposed to what he was chosen to be, that is the son of God. We see a man who received nothing but grace and responds with little short of contempt. We see how a life of zeal inevitably turns out into predatory hunger for self-satisfaction. And we see the saviour of God's people become an enemy of the vulnerable. Basically, in this story, we see a king become a tyrant. Now, for those of you who don't read the Bible very often, or who may have slipped into the habit of treating it as ancient life hacks for today's dilemmas, David's actions and (coughs) even some of the Lord's responses will no doubt seem shocking stretching the very bounds of plausibility as to why they're even recorded in Holy Scripture. Yet, as a good friend reminded me, the stories of the Old Testament are not a collection of fables with a pithy moral at the end. The story of Israel and her kings is, at times, gruesome because it is, in its own way, an actual history of the world in which we live. Even so, I'd like to persuade you tonight that the story of David, Uriah and Bathsheba is in fact written for our benefit. And it's written for two important reasons. Firstly, that our Heavenly Father's promises are trustworthy because they rest on His grace alone. And secondly, that we need our Heavenly Father's justice in order to have hope of receiving both grace and mercy. So two things to look out for that the trustworthiness of God's promises relies on his grace alone and for us to experience grace and mercy, we need his justice. So let's turn together to 2 Samuel 12 and read this sorry tale of corruption. But before we do that, uh, we should pray. Father, we ask for mercy. We pray that your spirit would open our hearts to hear your voice, that you would quieten the clamour of outrage in which we live and help us to see the truth about justice that brings grace and mercy. And we pray all this for your son Jesus' sake. Amen. So then, the path to corruption. Now, the events of 2 Samuel 12 are actually the end of an incident that begins in chapter 11. So, uh, if you're looking at a Bible there, scroll back uh, a screen or so to the beginning (coughs) of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Chapter 11 begins with some fairly fateful words, which are bitter in their ironies. 2 Samuel 11 verse 1. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. 
They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Back in 1 Samuel 8, the people begged God to give them a king the same as all the other nations have. That's in 1 Samuel 8 verse 4. And now years later, we see Israel's king kicking back at home while the rest are out doing their duty, including David's own men. Not surprisingly, idle hands make for the devil's work. And in this case, we read of the great general strolling on the garden rooftop of his palace, looking down on his subjects instead of watching over them. And the path of David's corruption is as short as three steps. He saw, he sought, and he took. Look with me. Chapter 11, verse 2. David saw a beautiful woman bathing. But instead of averting his gaze, he starts entertaining his desires. Verse 3. David sought the woman. The royal protector becomes sexual predator. As his messengers are sent and we discover that her name is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam. David saw, David sought, and in verse 4, David took the woman. While she was otherwise pursuing holiness. And what's more, he took the wife of Uriah the Hittite, we discover. David saw, David sought, David took, and he lay with her. And now Israel has a king like all the other nations. He takes, just as the Lord warned he would in 1 Samuel 8, 11. Let me remind you, these are the rights of the king who will rule over you. He will take your sons and put them to his use in his chariots. He can take your daughters to become perfumers. He can take your best fields and give them to his servants. He can take a tenth of your grain and give them to his officials. He can take your male servants, your female servants, your best young men, your donkeys, and use them for work. He can take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourselves can become his servants. Now, of course, David was going to be different, wasn't he? And indeed he is. The one who danced before the ark of the Lord with all his might. David takes your wives. And David takes your life. What follows in the rest of 2 Samuel 11 is a tragically common tale of a powerful man using all the resources at his disposal to escape accountability for his actions. The institutional rape of Bathsheba has resulted in a pregnancy. Surprise, surprise. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I'm pregnant. In verse 5, so David summons her husband, Uriah the Hittite, back from the battlefields with the intention of using marital fidelity to cover up adultery. He sends Uriah home. Go down to your house and wash your feet. In verse 8. Now here's another bitter irony. Uriah's actions are the perfect mirror of his king's. Uriah speaks truth to power by denying himself the comforts of home and his conjugal rights for the sake of his duty to the Lord, the army, and even his king. Look at verse 11 there. 
The ark, Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, says Uriah, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house and eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Rats. David might be dumb, but he's not stupid. So he adds ruthlessness to duplicity. Having twice failed to get Uriah to go home to his wife, David sends him back to the battlefield with a message for the commander. See to it that this man dies. As is so often the case, the powerful are those who can move the forces of chaos to their own advantage, and David is a player on the world stage. And so the message returns from the field to David in verse 23 and 24. The men gained advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we had counterattacked right up to the entrance of the gate. However, the archers shot down on your soldiers from the top of the wall and some of the king's soldiers died. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Well, with those loose ends tied off, David takes Bathsheba into his harem and all's well that ends well. But there is one character in the David story from whom we've heard nothing throughout this whole wretched account. The path to corruption for David ends in confrontation. Let's go back to 2 Samuel 12. God sends Nathan again to speak to David. Now this is the same Nathan whom the Lord sent in chapter 7 when God made his covenant with the king and he promised him, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. Not a bad promise, really. Now from the events of chapter 11, it seems fair to conclude that David has forgotten this promise or at least its significance, and so Nathan returns to remind him, but he does it with a masterclass of bait and switch. It's a classic story, rich man bad, poor man good, rich man selfish, poor man devoted. But as the Hebrew scholar Robert Alter suggests, the point of the story is actually to amalgamate both David's crimes against Bathsheba and Uriah. Look at verse 4 of 2 Samuel 12. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man, <coughs> excuse me, the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveller who had come to him. Actually, it says, it seemed a pity to the rich man to waste one of his own animals. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and he prepared it, a word which here means he slaughtered it, He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. And there it is. He took and he slaughtered. Here in this pithy story, told for full effect to the hapless king, the prophet sums up the essence of David's corruption in chapter 11. But the final blow is still to come. In response to David's righteous histrionics, And see how the powerful and peaceful get so uptight about social action all of a sudden? Look at verse 5 of chapter 12. 
David was infuriated with the man and said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die, because he's done this thing and shown no pity. He must pay four lambs for that lamb. Now he's really taken it hook, line and sinker, hasn't he? And then God confronts him. Nathan replied to David, You are that man. You are that man. At last the bubble of David's self-deception has been burst. At last the fog of his self-deluding contempt for the grace of God has been blasted clear. At last the would-be kinsman redeemer of Israel has been forced to realise the tyrant that he's become. Verse 9. Why have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and you took his wife as your own wife. The Lord drew David up from an adolescent life of sheep, dung and flies to the heights of power over all Israel, over Saul and his household, only to have him go on with a narcissism that was as juvenile as it was deadly. So the Lord struck David down in that very moment and he fell at Nathan's feet dead. That's what we want, isn't it? That's fair. We might be a bit squeamish about Uzzah dying having placed his hand on the ark, but imagine if David had imagine if Nathan had published his parable on Twitter. Hashtag you are that man. David would have been shredded in minutes, and rightly so, and we would have joined in the chorus, wouldn't we? Like, like, retweet, retweet, retweet. Because the mob demands instant and unrelenting fairness. All receive the same, the same opportunity and the same fate. Now, of course, there are very important reasons why we don't let the righteous indignation of the mob rule over our lives, but it's not because of the poorly organised crime of abusive bishops or megachurch pastors has anything to do with the justice of God. No. We need God to act justly, but not fairly, so that we can see that his promises are arising from his grace alone. We need God to be merciful to David so that it can never be said that God changed his mind once he's made a promise. We need God to be true to his word, especially when the king is not true to his calling. So God sent Nathan to confront David with the reality of his corruption and to remind him that there was nothing about David that warranted God's choice of him in the first place. If the power of God's promises rested on the recipient to whom it was given, then God would be constantly changing his word and there would be no reason to trust him for anything. David does deserve to die for what he did to Uriah and Bathsheba, but God shows mercy. Mercy is getting what you don't deserve. It's one of the key elements that distinguish justice from fairness. Because fairness has no room for mercy. It only has favouritism. Have you noticed that? Some sportsmen are more equal than others. 
Some politicians are just more equal than others. Some men are just more equal than others. But there's no favouritism for David, even when he is forgiven. Rather, as Nathan reveals, David will suffer the consequences of his actions for generations to come. It's there in verse 11 of chapter 12. This is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on you and your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes and he will sleep with them publicly. You are acted in secret, but I will do all this before Israel in broad daylight. You see, David's not excused from being the king. He's not relieved of his duty. Like Adam before him, he must now continue to have dominion over Israel. But like his great-great-grandfather Adam, it will become toil. Since his household will be overrun with violence and corruption that his character has brought. Now, it's important to allow some rhetorical space for Nathan here, for his pronouncement, because it's really more predictive than it is prescriptive. God's not going to force otherwise good people to start doing bad things all of a sudden. He will simply no longer intervene for their good, as he has done previously for David all his life. The Lord will preserve the household of David, but his corruption will be the mark of its character. We need God to be merciful to David and his household so that we can see clearly that God's word remains pure even when it's given to the corrupt. But there's a second equally important reason why we need God to show mercy to David despite his crimes. We need God to be merciful to David so that there's hope for us. In 2 Samuel 12, 13, David responded to Nathan... I have sinned against the Lord. There's a longer version of it in Psalm 51 verse 4. David says, Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. You are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. And Nathan replied to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. We need God to be true to his word especially the word to forgive sins. And in this story, there's no better example of the need for forgiveness than King David. And so the story of corruption of the best becomes a story of hope, hope for release from corruption. If God can forgive David his sin, then God can forgive any of us for the times when we take opportunity and power and turn them into abuse through self-expression or self-fulfilment. We are that man. But because of God's mercy, we can pray as David did. In Psalm 51 verse 10, David wrote, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and give me a willing spirit. So God's justice prevails with space for grace and mercy. Bathsheba is not abandoned to fend for herself but is instead taken into the royal court and ultimately becomes the mother of the next king. Her son Solomon 
is David's successor and one of her greatest kings. And potentially, Bathsheba becomes one of the most powerful people in the land. Because as Hannah's prayer had foreseen, the Lord raises up the lowly and brings down the mighty. Now the only hole that remains is the life of this unnamed child of David's adultery. God takes that life back. To our ears, it seems nothing more than further punishment for an abused woman, since for us, children are only born according to a woman's choice. But it wasn't so in David's time. The birth of a son was a husband's reward, and David is clearly not worthy of that. So the Lord takes the child back, because ultimately any and every life is a gift from God. For many of you, no doubt, that's an unsatisfactory solution, a lame explanation. But instead of viewing it as another attempt by a straight white male to gloss over the history of abuse against women, it might be worth taking into consideration that God makes a hole in the line of David and fills it himself. God the Son takes the place of the unnamed child and redeems not only the house of David, but the whole of humanity. When the good son of David appears in the story, he raises up abused women and stares down their accusers. When the good son of David appears in the stage of history, the vulnerable have hope. And when the good son of David becomes the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. When the royal and eternal son returns, there will be a reckoning for the history of abuse by great and small. There will be justice, and it will be swift and terrible. But the judge will be the one who takes away our corruption. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.